welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. Today, we are finishing up our week with Minute 5, which gives us our first glimpse of the Frost Giants and the Casket of Ancient Winters, not the Tesseract, and ends with Laufey freezing to Asgardians. Andy, what jumped out of you about this moment? When I watch this minute, I feel like Brana and the uh, the team at Marvel said, this is an opportunity to do something that feels a little bit Lord of the Rings-ish. We have this big kind of epic battle that starts. Well, first we have this big attack by the Frost Giants on the people of Tunsberg, uh, which is special effects glory. It's all It's a wonderful scene to watch. And then, of course... The Asgardians arrive, headed by Odin, and the battle commences. It just feels epic. And I think that's, uh, I mean, it's interesting. This wasn't in the script, which I'm sure we'll talk about some more. But I feel like they said, let's do something to give this a little bit more of an epic feel, because this makes this feel very epic right now. It does, it does. And Lord of the Rings is definitely, I think, a, a good analogy and i think probably the one a lot of us viewers go to interestingly when branagh talks about it he he reminds me that uh his shakespearean version of henry v also has an epic battle like that you know you don't shakespeare you think of happening on stage but when he made that movie he thought you know what this is all about the the great battle with the french let's show the great battle with the french so yeah and that was kind of his inspiration and i love that of like this you know the battle of agincourt this great battle from history and and henry v and shakespeare eh, you know same thing if we have frost giants and asgardians so we're gonna talk about <laughs> all that in just a second but first let's hear a word about membership We are an independent podcast from True Story FM. We love, 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 love producing this show and geeking out about Marvel content every day, but it does take time and it costs money. Without our members, for whom we are eternally grateful, we couldn't keep this going. Membership means that we can deliver content to you without selling your information and interest through podcast advertising sources. We like our privacy and know that you do as well. If you're already a member, thank you. If you're not, please consider becoming a member for the season. It only costs $5 a month, or we offer a discounted price if you join at the annual rate. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to shows, access to live streams, stickers, and more. Plus, you get the comfort knowing that you're supporting this independent podcast production. Visit truestory.fm slash Minute to learn more. Thanks. Members are heroes. Welcome back. So this minute opens with our first sight of the Frost Giants. And it's kind of a fun uh, visual because we sort of start seeing them like in this battle line from a distance. And the camera kind of uh, closes in to one of them holding this, you know, big blue thing. Again, not the Tesseract. I made that mistake. Uh, We're going to talk about what it actually is in a second. But I think this is a great moment because we've been talking all week about how Thor is a character with his foot in two incredibly different origins. One of it being the comic books of the later half of the 20th and then 21st century. And the other is Norse mythology, Norse mythology, much of which dates back to the like ninth and eighth century. Um, and, and so I want to talk a bit about like what we know about the frost giants from mythology. And then Andy, I'd love to hear your comments on like the frost giants in the comic books and sort of how the, how what we get on screen kind of does or doesn't evoke uh, 
you know, what we see, you know, either of those two origins. Absolutely. And I say that because especially the frost giants are, I would say, fairly different from what they are in the actual mythology. And of course, at a later point, we're going to go into like our mythological sources. There's uh, two great documents, the poetic and the prose eddas that are a lot of the source of um, our modern understanding of Norse mythology. There's also a great book by Neil Gaiman, where he kind of does a rewriting of Norse mythology that that helps a lot. There's a lot of different sources. We'll get into that later. So, And, and of course, there's, there's no such thing as a definitive version of a myth. But the commonly accepted story, at least as, I, as I've understand a lot of the myths, is that the giants, to some extent, both frost giants and fire giants, who we don't hear as much about, they kind of predate the gods. And in in many cases, including Odin, Thor, and of course Loki, those gods have at least one giant parent. Um, and in reading it, I, I don't think this is an exact analogy, but it kind of reminds me of the relationships between the Titans and the Greek gods, you know, in terms of like Kronos and, and all mm. those people who are an Atlas, who are the rulers before the gods and the gods overthrow them, but also are kind of their children. And there's kind of a similar thing that happens here in the mythology, and they are often the enemies of the gods, and often there's an awful lot of stories about fighting with them, but they're also much more closely tied in. Uh, And so I I just think that was kind of an interesting uh, thing to think about as we see them. What are they like in the comic books? Well, let's just say they started really differently. I'm going to show you visually uh, what it looks like, and, and people who are watching the live stream can see this. I will actually take a screenshot of this. And I will post it uh, like in our Facebook chat and stuff like this. But I just want you to take a look at what uh, what Laufey, the the king of the Frost Giants, looked when we first saw them uh, appear in, in the movie. There he is in oh, his that's, green, uh, green armor with his red helmet. Yeah, there, the, the body seems a little bit yellow. There's no blue anywhere. <laughs> um, that looks kind of like an angry Viking Martian, I think is the best way I can describe him. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it's. Very strange the way that they decided to start with uh, the king. Now, he's not even, uh, it just says he's Laufey, king of the giant warriors of Jotunheim. So he's not even a frost giant at this particular point in time. You know, and so I, I, I guess it's been an evolution. And Laufey himself doesn't appear that often in, in the comics, but the frost giants certainly do. And they definitely have evolved. Um, they now generally are kind of the blue skinned look that we see here. And but there have been times where when they've been shown, they're completely made of ice. Size wise, as giants, they change. Sometimes they're fairly regular size. Sometimes they are actual giants, like incredibly, incredibly tall. So they've it's been all over the place the way that they've had them in the comics. I think now and probably because of the film, they generally are keeping them kind of similar to how they're looking in the film. Um, but they've they've created them with kind of like these tattoo marks on them that indicates their rank, and they also have like some armor pieces that blend in really well into their into their look. And I've never quite been able to tell: are their armor pieces also supposed to be made of ice? Is it actual armor that they put on, but it just blends in? I don't really know. But regardless, you know, they they have some pieces of armor on, obviously in certain places, just because. Um, you don't want naked frost giants running around, but <laughs> so they have like the little loin kind of the pieces and things like that, but shoulder pieces, some of them have little head pieces. And then also they're running around with weapons. Uh, we'll see. Sometimes they'll actually make weapons with 
ice. It'll form off of their bodies and they use it to fight. But then also they carry weapons um, that have like, it's like a, it looks like a metal rod with like an ice blade. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting look that they have kind of evolved from the comics to create what we have here in the film. Right. Now, in the comics, I wonder if they explain something that the movie I don't think ever does a good job of explaining, but we'll get to more about it later. What do they want? What, what's their motivation? There's, well, and, and to that end, how do they move through the Bifrost? Like, there are a lot of questions that come up <laughs> with stuff like this. I'm like, did they have access to that? I mean, I, I just don't know. And what they, what they want is they want to uh, take over the nine realms. Like, that's, that's kind of their goal, is to kind of freeze everything and take over. Um, but it doesn't, it's, it's like, it's a very generic bad guy motive that we have in all sorts of films it, it's never a good example but it's just like because ah, i want to rule the world it's like okay but what does that mean what are you going to do when you rule the world and that's what the frost giants want to do they they're using their their casket of ancient winters to freeze everything i guess to make it more appealing so they have a bigger place to roam around but it's very vague very mustache vague, twir- so, someone's got to twirl a mustache every now and then you know i, I love a good villain but I think it does make a nice counterpoint in, in a sort of a questionable explorer is sort of who is the, the main villain of this? Is it Laufey? Is it Loki? You know, how does all that play out? Because uh, I think it's one of the most interesting parts of the story. Now, and of course, we see him holding something that I, I I'm going to say that I, I, what I wrote in my notes, you know, we see him holding the Tesseract because <laughs> in, in this Asgardian world, I think even in this movie, that's certainly something that we got introduced to as, you know, the, the, let me, let me get ahead of myself, because maybe I'm wrong about the entire movie, and that it's always the Casket of Eternal Winter, is that what it's called? The Casket of Ancient Winter. Casket of Ancient win- Winter, thank you. You know, and, and I'm gonna go th- we're going to go through and be like, well, uh, is this always that, never the Tesseract? But either way, like especially given how much the Tesseract ties into the Norse history, I think set design could have come up with something that looked a little bit different. But even putting that aside, tell us about this casket. What is it exactly? Well, and just just to your point, it is very confusing. I don't think I even knew it was the casket of ancient winters until I started doing research on the film. Okay, good. Because <laughs> it, it's a Marvel thing. It's like this blue glowing shape. It's like it looks kind of like a tesseract sort of thing. I mean, who knows? I guess I guess sharp eyed observers would say, well, it's clearly not doing what the tesseract does. This particular magical blue object is blasting icy winds out. So it must be the casket of ancient winters. <laughs> of course, it's, of course. Right, right. But what's interesting about this particular object is there's there's an incredible line of Thor that's called the Searcher Saga that is it's an interesting read. This was in the 80s when this came out. It's it really is kind of a strange blend of what you get in the three Thor films. Because Searcher, as we will find out in Thor Ragnarok, is the big red uh, fire demon who uh, ends up kind of creating Ragnarok in that particular film. He wants out, and over the course of this, he's trying to get out of this this prison that Odin had put him in, and he uses the wiles of Malekith, the, the dark elf, mm. who actually has the casket of ancient winters as one of his tools i don't know why he okay. has it and not the frost giants but he's the one who has the casket of ancient winters and so he ends up um using this casket of ancient winters uh which which for some reason had been kept 
and protected by some people, a human on Midgard. And when a human control or keeps it in their care, they kind of have eternal life. And so this person is very old. Uh, anyway, long story short, uh, Malekith tracks this person down, takes the casket of winter, ancient winters back, freezes uh, with it the gate that is keeping uh, Searcher kind of locked and, and kind of behind it. And so Searcher is finally able to break out and wages war, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the casket of ancient winters is broken and on Midgard. And what happens is it actually starts freezing the entire planet. Mm, okay. Before, before the uh, the human who is taking care of it is able to reassemble it and kind of keep get everything back uh, <laughs> the way do. it was, as you do. But yeah, exactly right. Um, but w- when I read this story, I was so fascinated that uh, one, it's not the frost giants who who basically keep the casket of ancient winters. It's Malekith, and so there's our dark world reference. And then it, 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 as he's partnering up with Searcher in in uh, that story, so it's like all of these stories kind of come together around this casket of ancient winters um such a strange and interesting blend of kind of the 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 world of the comics and how it they pull these pieces apart in interesting ways in the films definitely definitely well and so let's talk about uh laufey and he's obviously going to become a very important character and i i would say i love the actor who plays him colin uh colin fior i think is how you pronounce it Colm, yeah, Colm. Fjord, thank you. I will say right now, I can't play your favorite game with you, though, because I've literally never heard of this actor <laughs> before or since. But tell us oh, a bit about okay. him from IMDb. Uh, well, if you've seen Chicago, which if you're a musical fan, uh, I would say that you have seen him because he plays Harrison in Chicago. Oh, okay. Cool. But he is a, he's a Canadian actor, and I, I, he's one of those people that I just love because he has a very kind of classic look to him. Um, his His face has kind of like uh, very chiseled cheekbones and stuff like that which they actually used to their advantage to create this makeup look that they did for for Laufey but i mean he's i guess the the film that i most place him in is the chronicles of riddick he plays uh, lord marshall in that particular film which i'm a big fan of, of okay. those movies i i i remember that movie fondly um i Vin Diesel is the man who reminded me that I'm not straight, so I have very fond <laughs> thoughts about him <laughs> in particular. And you put him and Dame Judi Dench. I still have no idea what she was doing in that movie, but she was fantastic. Was, I can't remember anything except the two of them, but I will take your yeah. word for it. Well, uh, he's the main bad guy, so uh, got it. Got if that it. helps at all. But yeah, he's he's just an actor who I really enjoy seeing pop up in things. But according to IMDb, the four films that he's known for are actually Chicago, which I brought up, The yep. Chronicles of Riddick, which I brought up, Thor, which we're talking about now, and Face Off, where he plays Dr. Malcolm Walsh. So okay, okay. there you go. Uh, another uh, cinematic uh, Nicholas Cage classics keep getting mentioned that I just haven't seen yet. So oh, there we go. So good. So good. I want to get into the battle, but there's one little moment that I just wanted to touch on because it you know, there's a trope that you often get in action movies, superhero movies, whatever it is, especially ones that are PG-13 that aren't like, you know, supposed to be R and kind of hardcore. Where the kid is always saved, you know, you, you put a kid in danger, especially you have the kid do something cute to kind of establish a human connection. And the hero always, always, always rescues the kid. Now, granted, um, we, we named the actor who plays the the little Viking daughter last uh yesterday and but we don't get any dialogue from her we don't we just see her running away in terror for a moment but i have to admit when when she was frozen along with her mother i kind of was like oh oh okay these these (laughs) frost giants are not messing around you know it was 
know, there was no blood, there was no gore, which I'm very happy for. It wasn't like a hard moment to watch, but it definitely was like, I feel like there's something very intentional when you show a child getting killed because it is kind of breaking a lot of cinematic uh, tropes. And, and so I just thought that was like an interesting little moment of being like, oh, yeah, okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm right to be scared of these frost giants. They're not messing around. No, and uh, to that end, the way that Laufey unleashes this casket of ancient winters, I mean, it, it sends this, uh, again, we're kind of like using these, these uh, tubular um, elements, like when, the, uh, when, when Thor landed on Earth in, a few minutes ago, or you know, it's it's this descending cone coming down from the sky, and here Laufey releases this blast. This this tube that shoots out across the fjord and freezes the waters, destroys a boat. I mean, it's like a nuclear blast, right? I mean, it it hits this boat while it's freezing it. It's ripping it apart. It it's tearing apart houses and while freezing it. And same thing with these people. I mean, it's horrifying what happens here. And watching this mother and daughter as they're trying to outrun it only to have it hit them and freeze in i mean it's a beautiful way it's like the the ice hits it and it it blasts it back like it's been wind carved it's it's stunning in its in its horror i mean it truly is horrific how many people likely just were killed by by the frost giants in this attack on midgard and i really love the way the whole battle is shot you know um and Kenneth Branagh talks a good deal about this in his uh commentary track one thing he says is that they you very rarely get the sort of like law, you know, wide camera lens. Here's where this army is. Here's where this army is. Here's who's flanking who. It's all very much like right in the middle of the battle. Like this person's charging at me and this person's getting killed and this person's thing. And, and Brenna said that was very intentional and that it was meant to be, it, it was, it was also the exact same style they'd used in Henry V because that same idea of, they don't necessarily want you to understand. They don't want you to understand the battle. They want you to understand the chaos and the fear of being in the midst of the battle. Which I, yeah. it's funny. It's like Lord of the Rings. You do get a lot more of those like big wide angle lens. Here's the whole battlefield shots, and those are fun. But I felt this was a lot more effective. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would say that you probably get uh, get them in Lord of the Rings too, where you'll get some of those really oh, intense sure, shots. Sure. Um, but I and I do enjoy the way that Brana shoots here because it is intense. And I mean, we haven't talked about it too much, but there's been a lot of handheld camera, uh, particularly with all the science stuff going on um, in the van, just to kind of amp up the tension. Once we get into this battle, it's the same thing, and we're, we have so much handheld photography. As you know, it, which puts us right into the middle of this big battle. I mean, it's intense, right? And we have these frost giants. And I will say, my one complaint, aside from the fact that it's so dark, sometimes it's a little hard to tell. The frost giants are—they're taller than everybody else. I'd say maybe eight feet ish or so. And the warriors are probably—I don't know—you know, six ish, five to six feet. Um, it's the battle happens so fast; it's kind of hard to tell that the frost giants are actually taller. Unless you like freeze frame it, but otherwise it is very intense, and and that's what I do really like about the way that Brana put this together. Definitely, definitely. Uh, what other moments from the battle jumped out at you? I really do like the way that the frost giants attack. We don't get a lot of those moments, but well, we get them. It's just they're so fast; it's hard to tell. But where you see them actually like growing ice on their arm to use as a blade, um, we we do see that the one who as soon as the humans are all frozen, we do see the frost giants attack, and that one jumps up and comes down, and he's got the big blade of ice on his arm, which is pretty cool to see. 
Um, and then, so there are a little, few of those moments kind of scattered throughout. Um, in fact, Lofi uh, actually does that. He has ice on one of his arms and he kind of like backhands an Asgardian who's kind of attacking him. And so there are some pretty cool moments, even with Odin. And that's what I love is that we have a, a moment with Odin where he's, you know, not, not the type of leader who stands on the hill watching his troops fight, right? He's actually down there in the middle of it. And we see him taking Gungnir, his staff, and stabbing a, a uh, frost giant with it and then flipping it over his head. So, I mean, he's he's an intense fighter. Yeah. And that that's also interesting because that is not really very true from the, the mythology. Uh, the Odin figure in mythology is sometimes a warrior, but really Thor is like the warrior of the gods. Odin actually is often a trickster. Like Odin, um, there's a lot of like early stories about him in which he kind of plays tricks on, you know, different sort of on like Raven or like different entities of the of the Norse universe. Uh, and that and and so Loki being his son is kind of an interesting kind of carry on of that. So I, I do think I, I can understand why they made some of the changes and I think it fits more with the comic books. But I do think that was an interesting kind of uh, different direction. Now, interesting yeah. also. Odin looks like a, a a younger man here. There's no gray in his beard. He looks kind of, um, you know, like a you know a, a proud warrior king in his forties or something. W- what was your take on that? It's always a challenge, I think, for studios to kind of de-age their performers. I think sometimes it works better than others. And I, but I will say, I look at Anthony Hopkins here, and I don't know if it's because these helmets cover so much of their faces when they have them on. That I, I'm like, I don't think they actually did anything to his skin to like soften it up or, or make it look younger. I mean, he looks really good. The beard coloring looks a little, a little <laughs> theatrical, I'd say. Um, but I buy like just because the way that the rest of his face looks, I end up buying him as this younger version of Odin here. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, but I, I will say to that end. I think it's a consistent issue in the film where we're going to find issues with these wigs and and kind of facial hair. So. <laughs> and for me, though, my issue wasn't really about the the visual effects. I think they're they're not the best, but it's in such it's in the middle of so much going on. I feel like unless you do like pause it, you don't really notice that too much. Although uh, my 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 friend who's really connected to that is going to be coming on later, Ashley Kaufman. She definitely, I'm sure, noticed. We can ask her. For me, it just mostly it raised a whole bunch of questions of. How do these characters age? Because gods are, to some extent, like, timeless, immortal, you know? And there's always the odd thing in in Greek mythology and Norse mythology and a lot of these of these gods are born and then they grow up and they have an adolescence, but they don't really grow old. You know, Zeus is always Zeus and and Hermes is always Nerd. And and Norse and, and Greek are not the same thing by any means. But even putting aside, like, the mythology of it, Certainly, I think we're supposed to believe that the Norse gods have been the Norse gods for a very, very, very long time. And it seems to say that, like, if I'm understanding correctly, that it seems like Odin has lived about half of his life in between the 8th century and the 20th century. So does that mean that all of Norse mythology actually starts in about, like, the the 2nd century or the 3rd century BCE? Um, that. I, I, it's one of those things I think kind of like we were talking about yesterday with some of the other stuff where we might take a small detail and run way too far with it. 
Yeah. But it, it, if Odin ages that much in those 1,200 years, it makes me ask a lot of questions about the timeline of all of these things. Well, and, and I mean, we know that he's not the first, though. I mean, you know, he's the son of Bor, and so um, there, there was, like, I feel like, I don't know, my impression of this has always been that we're not actually meant to see them as gods. Like, they might right. see themselves as these great leaders and stuff, but they live a really, really long time. And that's that's kind of, I think, an interesting element that we have here. And it, but the Vikings obviously thought that they were gods because they are so much more powerful than them. But it does bring up an interesting line that Odin actually has in his monologue here, where he's talking, uh, where he and his uh, Asgardian warriors arrive to protect these people. And he says, the people of the mortal world. And I was like, oh, so is he implying that he is immortal because I thought he wasn't immortal. I thought right. they just live a really long time or something. So it's, I don't know. It, it, it's an interesting element that, uh, well, I, I, I have questions about, and we'll certainly continue to explore this over the course of the film. Once we get to Odin sleep and all that sort of thing, but it's, it's an odd element in here because yeah, like, you know, do they, do they like, why is he, stepping down from the throne if he's got going to live for thousands more years. You right. know, there's so many questions. I mean, the whole <laughs> idea of Thor being his successor, that definitely does imply that there is some, like, final finiteness to Odin's life that isn't from the mythology, which, again, is totally fine. Like, I think that's a legit change to make. But yeah. it, it is just interesting, like, it, 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 I don't really know how the timeline works. I always thought it was supposed to be, yes, definitely, they're not gods, they're not immortal, they have very, but that the timelines were a lot longer than that, that age jump would seem to be. But, you know, right. maybe it's just the last 10 years, you know, this is when he finds Loki. And I certainly would believe that raising Loki as your child would give you a lot of gray hair. So, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like being president, right? <laughs> yeah, any, any, anything is possible there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I noted about the battle, and I want to kind of start to wrap up, but we're going to have a lot to say about the Frost Giants in, in coming coming days and weeks. I think it's a really interesting idea of kind of the flip side of the whole idea of real things that humans don't quite understand is what becomes mythology is that, you know, of course that like your mythology is often also wrapped up in the things that you're most naturally afraid of, you know? And so of course, if there's, you know, the thing that the people of Northern Scandinavia would most feel most fear is eternal winter, you know, and gods of ice and, and like, to me, it just fits so perfectly into, like, I feel like it's a very, you know, and this is more about the mythology and all that. And, and, you know, the people of that period of time, they were creating this mythology about frost giants. Because, yeah, frost and fire, two most terrifying things if you're in, again, in northern Scandinavia. But I just think that's a, it's a cool thing of thinking about, like, yeah, the gods of New Mexico, you know, indigenous uh, thousands of years ago, probably not gods of frost. Because <laughs> if, if you're in New Mexico, you're in Arizona, you tell me, like, frost doesn't seem to be the thing you're afraid of that often. <laughs> No, exactly. Yeah. Searcher would make more sense for people to be afraid of here. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, it's, it's it, I think that's very true. That's that's a point that makes a lot of sense with kind of the, the way that these fears would fit into these myths. And actually it's interesting because I mean, at this point we know it's this battle that's raging between the frost giants and the Asgardians. Eventually, as we'll find out uh, next week, it leaves Midgard and it ends up finishing somewhere else. But you can imagine that the people who did survive this attack are going to have these stories that kind of continue on that, 
kind of like leads to expanding that fear of the kind of an eternal winter. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, I think that's kind of all I had to say about this minute. Is there any other things you wanted to bring up? Uh, you know, this is something I, I think it's an interesting point to just bring up now. Um, it certainly is going to fit with anything related to the Frost Giants and Jotunheim. Um, but in the in the credits of the film, there are two National Geographic photographers, Paul Nicklin mm. and Norbert Rosing. Um, they have some fantastic collections of icy landscapes and glaciers and things like that that uh, were referenced by the filmmakers in this film for a lot of these, the looks like that windswept ice look and just kind of creating these worlds. So just wanted to give them a shout out because I think that, uh, you know, a lot of natural beauty that they captured that was able to expand these worlds. Yeah. Pretty cool. You know, I now think of it that it's all CGI, but it looks, you know, fantastic in the moment. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know if they, you know, what CGI was possible 10 years ago. So it, it, it's just a great moment for sure. And I'll just call out one of their great effects, Laufey's red eyes. They're just, they're subtle, Ooh, but they're yeah. so, so powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, he doesn't need to say much. You just see that look with those red eyes and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I, I buy into anything that he's about to do. All right. Well, thank you, Andy. Uh, thank you all uh, to our listeners. Hope you're really enjoying this and have a good day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. 